From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. A new executive order will let federal agencies emphasize the skills a potential employee has and de-emphasize educational credentials. The acting director of the Office of Personnel Management, Michael Regas, says hiring employees for certain jobs like law enforcement officers, lab technicians, and IT specialists is harder now than it should be because of the requirements. FedScoop reports President Trump signed the order on Friday. The Navy's first-ever chief learning officer is the latest Pentagon official to leave the department. John Kroger writes on LinkedIn he'll leave the Navy, quote, later this summer. Defense News reports the Navy says it does plan to name a replacement for Kroger. Three companies will produce proof of concepts for the General Services Administration's e-commerce portal program. Amazon, Fisher Scientific, and Overstock.com will build online marketplaces where agencies can buy approved goods. FCW reports GSA expects the first marketplace online within 30 days. The 2020 hurricane season is underway now as the pandemic continues. Stakeholder agencies are preparing for both fast. Dave Grant's former acting deputy administrator at FEMA. He's a partner at Potomac Ridge Consulting. Dave, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Is this different than the contingency planning that FEMA and other agencies do every year? Maybe we'll get two things that we have to deal with at the same time. This year they know they're going to get hurricanes and we're still dealing with coronavirus. Is this different this year? It's absolutely different, Francis. And um, and you're right. The National Weather Service issued a report in the last month that predicted a greater than average hurricane season, maybe six to ten named storms and maybe three to six major hurricanes. Of course, we don't know if that'll be accurate, but that's a prediction. So FEMA has to be prepared. Secondly, you're dealing with the pandemic, which means that they have to do things differently. They have to be prepared for social distancing. They have to be prepared for virtual support. And they're working really hard to do that with with their uh, with their support team and with their uh, their customers, the state, local, tribal, uh, territorial, and uh, and other agencies. What's the risk management framework look like in an environment where you know when you're trying to save somebody off the roof of a building, social distancing isn't it a thing? Can't think about that. All those kinds of situations where. The, the typical things that one thinks about regarding one element of a response completely conflict with the elements of the second response that one is undertaking. What's, what's, how, how do you triage that? Well, it's absolutely true. You have to be prepared for both. Uh, one thing they're doing is preparing additional locations for their joint field offices and their response centers. Uh, for example, the NRCC, which is the National Response Coordination Center, has an alternate site so they can spread out and be socially distant, and all the regional coordination centers are doing the same. They are working with the state and local partners and military partners uh, for, as you mentioned, the urban rescue teams uh, to, to find additional personnel so that if something happens, if somebody is infected in one, they can go to another unit. So they're developing additional capacity to go for those people that have to be physically present. So that word that you just used there seems to me like maybe that's the key element of a, of a dual response or, or thinking about responding on dual tracks, and that's capacity. Is that the major factor here, Dave, is just building capacity just to handle whatever might be coming down the line? 
Well, I think you have to, capacity is certainly a major issue. You have to have capacity, uh, but also it's additional planning. Mm -hmm. FEMA put out a preparation kit to all of its partners, both federal agencies as well as state, local, territorial, and tribal, to help them prepare for dealing with things remotely. And they are doing things like uh, planning for remote uh, damage assessments to facilities rather than on site to try and reduce the need to have people on site. So that's one way that they can do it. But the second part is capacity. When you get to urban search and rescue, as you suggested a moment ago, then having additional capacity will be critical. You mentioned uh, some of the stakeholder organizations here a few minutes ago, Dave, just at the federal level. I mean, I've been watching this stuff for a long time. And if you would have told me some of the organizations would be heavily involved in a pandemic response that are heavily involved, I wouldn't have guessed that. What's the stakeholder landscape look like for hurricane season just at the federal level? Who's involved that maybe people don't think of immediately as being involved? Well, there are multiple cadres involved and you have to think of health and human services. But, but really, almost every federal agency is involved in preparation for uh, not just a hurricane, but any disaster. Because you have to remember, FEMA has to be prepared for an earthquake, which doesn't have a season. Um, so you have people from Interior, Park Service, Geological Survey, Health and Human Services, uh, of course, virtually every arm of the military, uh, of course, all across DHS. Uh, GSA is a big component as well because they do a lot of the supply chain management. Uh, Defense Logistics Agency has stepped up in a big way, and they are providing a lot of support for the logistics management for FEMA. I ask a lot of guests on this program, Dave, what should be in the after-action report that your organization prepares for coronavirus response? How detailed, how granular are those after-action reports? And what really are the key things for organizations who don't do them on an ongoing basis or don't do them as regularly as FEMA does them? What what did you do at FEMA? What did you want to know after the fact at FEMA to be able to really apply to whatever the next thing is that comes down the line or apply to next year's hurricane season that you learned from this year's or whatever? That's a great question, Francis. And one of the things I appreciated, I learned at FEMA and I appreciated at FEMA was their ability to do an after action report. And frankly, the honesty and, and being forthright in the report it is most important to find the things that you do well and the things that you didn't do well because that's how you learn from it. That's how you prepare for the next one. And as we say at FEMA, there is no disaster that is similar to the one before it. Every, every one of them has their own unique qualities. So the only way that you actually get better is to be very forthright in your after action report, identify those things that didn't go well, identify ways to try and make them better and that's working with the partners. So encouraging those folks who don't normally participate in that to be very forthright, put it all in there, and then everyone learn from it for the next one going forward. Dave Grant, it's terrific insight as always. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks, Francis. Up next, driving innovation on the front lines of the coronavirus. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the government agency engineers that are looking at 3D printing in a new way. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The Veterans Health Agency Innovation Ecosystem works on solutions for veterans. The office is pivoting now to create protective gear for first responders during the coronavirus. One of the recent Makers Challenges produced a face mask specifically for first responders. Danielle Krikora is product manager at the VA Office of Information and Technology and entrepreneur in residence at the VHA Innovation Ecosystem. Danielle, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Give me a thumbnail of what the Makers Challenges looks like overall before we get to the specific coronavirus response. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to share this amazing work. Uh, so in 2019, the VHA Innovation Ecosystem partnered with veteran nonprofit Challenge America to host an event we call Challenge America Makers for Veterans or CAMVETS. And uh, during this event, what we focused on was the needs of our disabled veterans. And uh, we, we found really truly creative, innovative and passionate people uh, from federal agencies, academia, nonprofits, private sector industries that wanted to make a difference. And uh, they came together in support of these disabled veterans and we formed these interdisciplinary teams. And over the course of several months, the teams developed uh, creative solutions along with their veteran teammate, which made this event really unique. So over the course of a couple months, they've sourced their ideas um, and uh, sourced their materials, refined their approach, and then it all sort of culminated in a 72-hour live baking event where uh, rich design and prototyping actually developed. There were, you know, in these creative spaces, there's 3D printers, there's laser cutters, all these fantastic things, and they developed these great solutions. Uh, what was unique about it is the veteran was center. I have to ask Sorry, you before yeah. we go forward, what kind of dog do you have? <laughs> uh, he's, he's kind of a mutt. He's a rescue. His name is Murphy. He's mostly a golden retriever. Um, <laughs> but he's definitely not happy with uh, being in another room right now. <laughs> when we're done with this uh, conversation, tell him we said hi. Danielle, how did you pivot from what you were doing before for veterans to responding specifically yeah. to coronavirus? What was that transition like? Uh, well, it was it was really easy, actually, because we had a great model that worked face-to-face, -face, and what we wanted to do was find a way to help. We knew a lot of the people we'd already built relationships with, our makers, wanted to help as well. So what we decided to do was create a series of five virtual events that occur one month apart. We condensed the timeline, and we focused on the needs of essential workers. And uh, each event focuses on a different essential worker, and, uh, and and it's, it's really it's really quite easy. We put that essential worker at the center, just like we did the disabled veteran. We crunched down the time frame, so it's only a week. The teams have a week to work together, source their materials, and it culminates over this rich uh, design sprint uh, over a weekend. And then the teams, really the making, the magic happens post-event, and, and that's where the teams work uh, on continuing to design prototypes whether it's with the VA or some of our other incredible partners with America Makes, FDA, CDC, um, and, and some others out there. Uh, so it, it's really worked nicely. A lot of people make a big deal, and we talk about this on this program a lot when we discuss the Department of Veterans Affairs, how many people there are veterans themselves. You served in the Army for 10 years. How did that experience inform the way that you go about this work particularly? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I was in the Army for 10 years as a combat medic, and then I was also a medical service corps officer. 
And uh, in that role, I worked with the Ministry of Health in third world countries, tried to identify their public health goals, and then collaboratively, we, uh, we aligned our medical assets with what their needs were and we deployed them. So I think that, that in that role, it really informed this specific project that I'm working on because it, it, you have to work with a variety of different stakeholders. You have to understand and, and, and overcome language barriers to some situations uh, and, and, and just find a way to come to common ground and, and deploy uh, assets to get people motivated and, and, and excited about working towards a cause greater than themselves, which is really part of, of what we're doing here. We have about a minute left, Daniel. What barriers to innovation have you seen? What have you had to try to overcome in order to deliver innovation in the way that you're doing so at VA? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, specifically with this event, I'd say the largest barrier is, is having to go virtual. Um, in the past, what made our event so successful is the teams could work face-to-face -face in a really creative environment and physically build stuff. In this case, oftentimes teams are teammates are all over the country. So they, they have to work virtually. They have to, to maintain social distancing when they come together in some of their physical maker spaces to fabricate this stuff. And, and that's been a challenge, uh, but, but they've rose to the challenge incredibly. It, it, it blows my mind actually to see the solutions that have come out of it. And I really hope that uh, folks will, will take the time to go to our website and check it out. Uh, our website's www.covid19makerchallenge.com. Danielle, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Up next, new privacy concerns as federal employees make their ways back to the office. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the employee information agencies need and the data they shouldn't collect. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. The explosion in telework because of the coronavirus pandemic has brought along additional cybersecurity risks. That's mostly because of more use of home routers and internet connections. Hugo Teufel is the new chief privacy officer at CenturyLink. He's former chief privacy officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Hugo, thanks very much for coming on. You and I have been talking for years about the intersection of information security and privacy. How is that intersection and how are those two issues manifesting themselves during the coronavirus response in your view? Well, Francis, first, it's great to be on your show. Thank you very much. Uh, it's an honor. Um, so second, to, to answer your question, I, I look at it in three ways. So there's how it affects the individual, the business or government agency, and then and then the internet service provider, right? The telecommunications provider. So for the individual, the shift to working from home may involve the use of personally owned equipment, and that can be risky as, frankly, for most people, basic computer hygiene may not be performed on their computers or their printers. Uh, some sensitive data just should not be handled on personal devices, and and that individual should should be properly trained by his or her uh, employer to make sure that personal information, personally identifiable information, is left on agency devices or company devices, and there are no downloads or memory sticks because that's how you have data breaches. For the business or government agency, there's an increased demand on networks, so that means there's a demand for resiliency. And I note that you spoke with one of my colleagues 
Andrew Dugan uh, last month uh, on those uh, very subjects. Uh, screening, so, so one thing is for folks who have to go into the office, increasingly employers are screening their employees. And so yes, you may need to do that, but, but keep in mind whether you need to have personal information collected and how you will be using that. And it's better not to do so unless it's required by a government agency or public health service. And then finally for the provider, and, and Andrew I think really covered this well when he was on your show, right? There, there is much greater use of, of the networks and for CenturyLink, we've been up about 35%. So you really need an internet service provider that's got a solid backbone to handle shifting needs. That conversation that you're alluding to is posted online at govmatters.tv. Hugo, the privacy issue that you talked about is one that I don't think we've covered, and I don't think anybody really has covered in this space. As employees come back to the office and they have to get their temperatures taken and they have to uh, provide other information about what they've done. What do agencies need to do or what should agencies do to provide confidence to those employees that that information is not going anywhere and that information is secure? Because that may not be information that is something that employees want shared, even if everything's fine. It's the concept of it more than the content of the information, it strikes me. Sure. So I think back to my time uh, both as Chief Privacy Officer at the Department of Homeland Security and also uh, in, in uh, my time with the D.C. Army National Guard serving at the National Guard Bureau. Uh, every agency should look to the authorities that they have, right, because when in government you always look to see what your authorities are. I note that at the Department of Defense, uh, DOD recently amended one of their Privacy Act systems of records notices for personnel accountability to allow for the temporary collection of, of uh, health information to address COVID-19. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have the site for that SORN, but if you go to the Defense Privacy and Civil Liberties Office website online, you should be able to find that, that system of records notice. What do you think the biggest challenges are for agencies in this time uh, regarding privacy of data that they're collecting about coronavirus and not just health organizations, not just the HHS and others, but all of these agencies are collecting data on an ongoing basis and seemingly on an exponential basis. And I, I wonder what the privacy implications of that are and what they should be doing internally. So you, you, again, you look to your authorities, you apply the fair information practice principles that undergird the Privacy Act of 1974. You ask yourself uh, if you are the agency's privacy officer, senior agency official for privacy, you ask yourself, do I really need this data? And if I don't, I shouldn't be collecting the data. My agency should not be collecting that data. How long do I need that data for? Uh, is it covered under uh, a records retention schedule? Uh, if I don't need it, I should be getting rid of it. Uh, uh, and, and again, as I said earlier, what's my authority? Is there a Privacy Act system of records notice, whether government-wide or agency-wide, that I can rely upon for the collection of that data? And have I conducted a privacy impact assessment when appropriate so that I can demonstrate to stakeholders, employees, uh, Congress, uh, cognizant congressional committees, that I'm doing the right thing and that my agency is doing the right thing. What does this all look like in your view, Hugo, six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, given that a lot of agencies are talking about continuing for extended periods of time the, uh, the telework 
uh, environments, the remote work environments that they're working with now? Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about that because, you know, I've, I've spent a number of years in the federal government and, and Congress has always had as a priority telework. Uh, now we're in a situation where we, many of us are required to work from home uh, and, and so uh, agencies and businesses alike no doubt are looking to see do we have resilient networks? Have we, have we properly equipped and trained our employees so that they understand what the risks are uh, when working from home and that we've provided them the tools necessary so that uh, they and, and our agencies or companies' data is adequately secured. Hugo Teufel, thanks very much. It's great to see you. Great to see you. Thank you very much, Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. In tonight's event spotlight, our special series, NatSec 2020, Coronavirus and Beyond is coming. You'll learn how COVID-19 is affecting the business of government in the national security community. You'll get informed and engaged about how COVID-19 will restructure the four specialty areas that drive the business of government, personnel, acquisition, financial management, and information technology in the national security community. Our free webinars are at fedinsider.com, or you can tune into WJLA 24-7 News the week of July 13th from 1 to 2 p.m. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.